grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is from Luke chapter 10. Jesus is making his journey that he began, we saw last Sunday, turning his face toward Jerusalem. He's got a determination, a purpose in mind to make it to Jerusalem, to make it to the cross, to rise from the dead for you. And here we're at chapter 10, and Jesus addresses a man with a question. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word and God's blessing to you. Have you ever had to admit you're wrong? And how did that go? Because if you've never had to admit you're wrong, you've probably never been married. Or if you've been married, you've never been happily married. Because it's hard work when your spouse knows that you're wrong, and you know that you're wrong, to have that conversation, and he asks her, what must I do? And she says, do this, and you will live. (laughs) And he, wanting to justify himself, says, I have done all this, but, and so it goes. If we have this much trouble admitting what what we've done is wrong, that the mustard is right where we left it, and even though I looked there, when she looks, it's there. Even if we have that much trouble with the little things, 
How will we handle it when that person showing us that we're wrong is a total stranger? A person we don't really know. Or worse, a person we know that comes from a group we don't like. An antagonist. From a group of people you do not associate with. From a different church. From a different political party. From a different race. From a different ethnicity. From a different social class. A person who looks different. Who lives different. A person just passing through. And this stranger. This Methodist. This Democrat. This illegal immigrant, this foreigner, this black man, this person, whoever they are from whatever category, points out that you're practicing a false religion, how are you going to take that? But he, wanting to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? A lawyer had stood up to challenge Jesus. Now, this was a lawyer, not in the sense that we know totally. A lawyer in the sense of ancient Israel, one who is an expert in the law. And the law includes both social laws, state laws, and religious laws. And he's an expert. He lives in an honor-shame culture where this area of his profession knows that this conversation is a risk for an expert to go up against another supposed rabbi and challenge him is a risk he's challenging jesus's honor can jesus handle this question or will he fall into the trap but jesus answers a question with a question he answers in wisdom he doesn't engage the original question and he turns things upside down because Jesus knows when his kingdom comes in the conversations we're having with people who are setting traps, you have to do things upside down. You can't just engage on the surface level, but you have to find a way in through the back door to get after what we're really talking about here. He answers correctly when Jesus says, what does the law say? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which is the great Shema that he would have memorized from the time he was a child, to love the Lord your God with your whole being. And then the second, from Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, not just partly, but totally, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, good. You're on the right track. Now do this, and you have your answer. There it is. Now this lawyer knows what Jesus is up to. There are, is an exchange of words that are not being spoken in this conversation because like any good debate, there's more than what's being said. And he knows that Jesus is setting him up because how could he truly say that he's loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that he's loved his neighbor as himself in every way. So he, wanting to justify himself, wanting to set the record straight, says, 
who is my neighbor? Perhaps even another trap by which he hopes Jesus will start to associate with neighbors that he himself would know could not be associated with. Confronted by God, his word speaks to our heart, and it reveals hidden things about me, about my prejudice, about my bitterness, about my vengeance and hatred that I've hidden away And Jesus, when he speaks through the word and the preaching of it, begins to work his way after those things. When Martin Luther wrote the small catechism a long, long time ago, it was because the common, uneducated people couldn't make sense of religion. They had a limited understanding of the commandments. They didn't have the scriptures in their homes. They didn't know how to read. And the religious leaders were making God into something that was so far distant from their home life that they began to think the only way you could get close to God was to be in church. That God was somebody who you could maybe get close to if you could get close to someone who's close to him, like a priest or a churchly person or a holy person. But when he wrote the small catechism, he wanted to make sure to translate it into the German language so he could put it into people's homes. So they could learn for themselves what the fifth commandment means. Now, when we deal with the fifth commandment, most people, the average person on the street, if you ask them, have you kept the fifth commandment? Or do you know what it is the fifth commandment? And you say, you shall not murder. Well, I've never killed anyone. Most people think, at least I haven't killed anyone, so maybe I haven't kept all ten, but at least I've kept this one. And in searching the scripture, we find that that sense of murder and life and the value of life starts way long before you take a life. Because truth begins in the heart. The commandment says not just not to murder, but not to hurt nor harm your neighbor in any way. But help and do what? You shall not hurt nor harm your neighbor in his body, but you should help and be a friend. That's one of my catechism students. Help and be a friend to him in every need. Befriend him. Which means that the fifth commandment is not just about not killing anyone, but becoming a a what? A friend. Okay. So he's asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he's asking, well, okay, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this parable. He starts the parable with a man. Now, when Jesus starts a parable... Every detail matters. Everything is shaping, but it's getting after one big thing. He doesn't start with a certain man, which a lot of his parables will start with a certain man. He just starts with a man, which makes the man very general. It's not a certain man. It's a man, anyone. A man is on a journey, and he falls among robbers. 
Now, as the audience is listening to this, as this lawyer is listening to us, the first person he's going to associate with is the man who falls among the robbers, the one who is hurt. He falls because then Jesus gets more specific, and along comes a priest, and then comes a Levite. So imagining yourself, you could fit in in various places in this parable, but first as the one who's hurting. What is it like to be that person on the side of the road who's been taken by violence, stripped naked, beaten severely, and is laying unconscious? Who do you expect to come to your aid first when you're desperately in need? So first you have the religious leader, a priest, the person who would be closest to God. A prominent figure, well-known, probably known in the city nearby, probably lives nearby, is simply coming home from work. But he passes by on the other side. Then you have a Levite, someone who's the same class as a priest, but he's just a step down. He's in the tribe, which is in charge of the worship life. So he, too, has come from the temple, from worship, and he's following the priest. But he, too, passes by. Who do you expect to come next? So in parables, things usually come in three. In triads, of the priest, the Levite, who would you expect to come third? And what would fit most naturally would be a Jewish layperson, the next step down. Priest, Levite, normal, common Jewish layperson, where, again, the lawyer could fit himself in. You would expect someone to come along and finally help this man. But who is the person? I was trying to understand who is my neighbor. He would expect that a priest would help him, a Levite would help him. This is someone who leads worship or a person you know from the choir or at least the common man on the street who is your fellow man, a common countryman, would help you. But this is not what shows up. Instead, a stranger comes. Not just a stranger, a foreigner. Not just a foreigner, an enemy. A Samaritan. Now, Samaritan in the Bible at this point is almost slang for enemy. Hated one. Unwanted, unclean, cursed. It dates back to the time of Solomon when the kingdom was split. And Samaria was right in the middle. And when the split happened, it turned into two kingdoms and two territories. And the northern territory was ruled by the king in Samaria. But he was overthrown by the Assyrians, a pagan people. And when he was overthrown, they brought in, they sent out a bunch of the Jews and scattered them all around to places like Galilee and beyond. And they brought in a bunch of foreigners from all sorts of different nations with different religions and planted them there. So what you ended up by the time of Jesus was a mixture of ethnicities, cultures, and religious practices. To the Jews, this was just totally corrupt. To the Jews, this is the people that split off and ruined the kingdom of Solomon. To the Jewish people in Judea, these were unwanted people. Now, if the lawyer is indeed the wounded man on the side of the road and you're laying there unconscious, 
Are you going to care who this person is? Are you going to ask to see their credentials? Are you going to ask them about your, their backgrounds? That's why they say there's no atheists in foxholes. Because at that point, you're confronted with God. God's not far away. In violence and death and suffering, we are confronted by God. He leaves us no choice. The question of who is my neighbor hits home. The hated Sumerian who is on a journey, he's far from home, he's traveling, it says that he is on a journey unlike the other two which live nearby, he's coming a long ways, he's headed off to another place, he doesn't know this man, and listen to the rhythm, the priest came, he saw, and he passed by, the Levite came, and he saw, and he passed by. And the Samaritan came, and he saw, but he didn't pass by. What was the third part to that in the text? He had compassion. So rather than passing by, he had compassion. He got near to the man. The man is stripped bare. There's no status. There's no class. He bleeds red like everyone else does. And a change happens here. God is changing people's hearts because the word for compassion means to be moved inside of yourself. It's the word, the Greek word for intestines, as if you can feel it in your gut. This is where God is not far away, but he's very near when you have that feeling in your gut and you're in that situation. He comes to where you are. Now, this is where Jesus comes into the story. The man's only help is a Samaritan. An unlikely, even unwanted. When you look at Jesus' life, he's treated like a Samaritan. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he's called a Samaritan. And as you listen closely again and again, you see Jesus coming through. God comes near. Not just like the Old Testament where he was there in symbols and symbolic worship rituals, but you find that he was so near, he was near in the flesh of Jesus, in a human body. And he comes to where you are. He comes to people who are hurting, who are ambushed by bandits, who are kept by the powers of darkness, beaten, abused, and left for dead. They're helpless. They can't call 911. There were no hospitals in those days. There's no ambulance to rescue that spiritually distraught person who is hurting. There's Jesus, and he sees you. He comes and he sees you and he recognizes who you are. You're naked. You're stripped bare. There's nothing to hide at this point. Nothing to hide from him. He knows this man inside and out. He sees past the facade and the pretending. He's not interested in those who are dressed up like this lawyer in churchly attire like a priest or a Levite. 
He wants us to be real. He sees these other people passing by, which supposedly are the church people, well-dressed, prominent experts in their field, well-paid, but they all have places to go. They all think that God is somewhere else. They all keep God at a distance. They keep on moving because they think they've got things to do. They're important. They've got business to attend to, and God is off there if they could just accomplish and meet their schedule and get their budget square. They pass by. But then this unlikely one that maybe has never been to your church, that doesn't look like you, he's the one that acts. Jesus is unexpected. This is what God's kingdom is like. He comes, he sees, he stops. He's moved. He has compassion. He feels it in his stomach. And so he acts. He treats the wounds. He carries the man back. He takes care of him. For two days, he pays his fees because he knows on the third day he's going to return. He pays enough for the two days because on the third day he's going to return. And he finds you resting and healing and fully clothed, and he pays it all, and he rises from the dead, and he enters us all into the glories of his kingdom. And he asks us, Not, who is your neighbor, but who has been a neighbor to you? And Jesus is the one. And with Jesus, we learn what it means to follow him, to answer these questions. Not to pass by, but to see how near God is in suffering, in lostness, in those divides that needed to be healed. Have you admitted that you were wrong lately? I don't know what the man admitted. He wouldn't even name that it was a Samaritan. He could just say the one who showed mercy. It was a simple answer. Doesn't sound like he's ready to get it. How did it go when you tried to admit you were wrong? Who is the unlikely person who you can become a neighbor for, who has wounds that need to be bandaged? Where is Jesus showing up? Where is that one in need, and where can you have compassion? And he says, now you go and do likewise. As the Samaritan did for you, you do for the Samaritan. Jesus is reiterating what he taught in the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. We had this sermon about a month ago. When he said, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, you do to them. God is here, God is near. And his kingdom is coming.